Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good day to you. Scott, making copies. So it's interesting because (laughs) we're recording on the 4th of July and you scheduled our recording time. And I said to my wife, this guy is totally a Canadian that lives in the UK because like 4th of July, like what does that mean? Yeah, (laughs) it's it's Wednesday. Hello? Yeah, and and I, you know, I guess that we must we must have some kind of deep romance thing happening because I think Fourth of July, you would have been, you know, that's like within your rights to say, yeah, I mean, we reschedule, got sort of other things going on, but no, here you are, here we are. Well, what's Fourth of July like in England? I mean, you know, like Michelle Wolf, the woman who did the White House Correspondents Dinner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she has a great show on Netflix, which I started watching. It's it's hilarious. It's fantastic, and she's like, you know, like. How um you see people and you broke up with them and then they gain weight and you're kind of happy. I feel like that's how England looks at America. Hey, America, <laughs> you look different. How's math and science going? <laughs> so it's Fourth of so July. Good. Like now the, that you've broken up with me. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like it, are people like walking around like, hey, they should have stayed. I mean, like, oh boy. I mean, so. Uh, first off, yeah, no, the 4th of July is Wednesday here in London. That, that's about it. And, you know, frankly, you know, like the, the Brits, they, they've got all sorts of national angsts, you know, that they're grappling with. I mean, everything from never really accomplishing anything in the World Cup of soccer, despite the fact that they originated the sport. Um, and this whole Brexit thing, which, you know, it's just it's a constant thing every day. And, you know, India leaving the empire, uh, you know, they got to go. There's a long list of grievances and things that people here are bitter about before you get all the way back to uh, the American War for Independence. So, you know, they're having a really dark day when they when they upload that one. That's that's yeah, there's, there's a lot to feel gray about. <laughs> You're they did pretty get pretty good against the United States in the War of 1812. Yeah, you know, just some, sometimes Canadians like to feel like that was us, uh, except when, you know, Trump tweets about it. Hey, didn't you burn down our White House? And then we're like, Did no, you guys we're British. We were. <laughs> burn the White House. Yeah. So, so yeah, Canadians are good at playing both sides of the War of 1812. It was like, yeah, that was us. That's when we burnt down the White House. And, and then Barack Obama reminds us, yeah, isn't that? But we didn't we bomb Toronto first? And reduce it to rubble. Yeah, something like that. Anyway. Like, America has been in existence, what, 200 and some odd years, like 220, no, almost 250 now, right? Like we're getting close to our 257. Let me do the math. So 300 would be 2076 and 18. So now we're coming 220, like our 220 something. We're getting close. And like for over 200 of those years, we've been at war. At what point do we say, look in the mirror and say, maybe the problem's me? <laughs> you know, like at some point, like, hey, like, I don't know. There are lots of countries that aren't at war all the time. You know, especially because, you know, for America, you got to go and find war to get it. Yeah, like right. Luxembourg is like never at war. Belgium, never at war. <laughs> Denmark, never like at you, war. You, like, you got to pack up 
your bags and travel. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing because we have Canada, our quiet neighbor to the north, and Mexico, who really is a blessing to us economically, but we like to demonize because it's hard to deal with creative destruction in a global capitalist world. So yeah, we have to, yeah, we have to, we have to travel. Have have military industrial complex. We'll travel. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's uh, it, it it drives innovation, man. It drives innovation. This is true. Apparently. So, Apparently. speaking of innovation, you wrote a fascinating uh, newsletter map, so to speak, Map Thirty Three. This is one of my favorites of your maps. The power of doubt. Doubt may be the key to innovation. Well, that's deep. I mean, you know. So I guess to get into the topic and, um, you know, my background for, for delving into this and say, you know, Hey, yeah, this is, this is a good topic for, uh, for the Atlas project, you know, cause what we're trying to do here, you know, is, is kind of like see, see deeper, you know, see the, the, the subset of issues beneath the just endless torrent of noise and news that's out there. You know, what are the, what are the few things that if we understand that, we kind of see the source code of what's going on in the world. And, you know, one like thing, Neo in the Matrix. Remember when yeah, Neo I, sees so, the totally, Matrix? Totally. You know, follow the white rabbit. So the white rabbit led me here. And by the way, and, let's take a moment to toot your horn. Like you were asked to open up the Oxford Symposium. Some of our listen, listeners will have heard of this little school, a little trade school over in England there. Oxford. You were asked to open up the Oxford. Symposium for Comparative and International Education. So they want you to like give 10 minutes that the young people will enjoy. Yeah, and and acronym, your topic is, <laughs> is right. It's the worst acronym I've ever heard. It, it's Oxy, which I think is some kind of like skin blemish cream or yeah, as a teenager, exactly. I seem to remember using it. And you have beautiful skin now. So no one would ever know you needed it. But oh, well, thank you. Yeah, and you had, you had the best topic. Like this, I, this is my dream topic. Talk for 10 minutes around the question. What is uncertainty? Yeah. Well, so I mean, it was a great conference and it was literally, it was a, it was a room of the who's who in, uh, global education. So like, uh, Agacon Foundation was there. Uh, UNICEF was there. Like Ford Foundation was there. Basically, uh, everybody sort of on the ground and, you know, in the, in the rooms with the money who are investing in and trying to solve, you know, how do, how do we educate the world? And the theme for their conference, <laughs> uncertainty, society and education. So it's basically a conference about everything and education. And, uh, and yeah, they said, you know, Chris, could you do, uh, just a 10 minute on, so like, what, what does uncertainty mean? Which, which I thought was cool. That's really why I said, okay, I don't know really anything about your topic, but I, I like, you know, these like big, deep questions. And, and especially I like questions that say, you know, here's, here's a concept, you know, here's a discourse that just everybody is throwing around right now. It, does anybody know what it means? Like, has anybody really sat down and said, well, what are we talking about here? And uncertainty, you know, to me, it's related to this word disruption, which if you spend any time in the business community now, uh, you, I mean, you cannot, you cannot speak to sort of a business leader for five minutes without using the word disruption because it's, it's the language they use to explain everything. And, uh, have you ever so challenged yourself to do that? Like at a bar after the conference, like, I'm going to go five minutes. I'm not going to say disruption. I'm not going to say, it. I'm not going to say. It. And then like at 432, you're like, disrupt. <laughs> Actually, what I'd like to do, I, I thought of doing this, but then I thought, you know, it's probably just going to end badly. You know, have everybody like crumple up a piece of paper into a paper ball. And, you know, whenever I use the word, you can throw it at me. But I think I would probably just get buried on stage with this stuff because like, yeah, so we, 
it's hard to not use language that is all around us being repeated all the time. Uh, you know, like fake news is another one. It's just, you just can't seem to get through the day without picking up that word, throwing it out and pretending that you know what it means. So, yeah. So I looked into this word uncertainty, which is, is, is kind of part of everyday discourse, especially if you have any kind of decision making role in the world. And you said to these oxy people, right? You said, look, I'll see your bad acronym and raise you a bad <laughs> acronym because you open up with VUCA. Yeah. Well, that's not mine. So VUCA, again, if, like if you're in like a decision making world, you like you, you talk about this acronym all the time. It stands for uh, volatile, uncertain, complex and uh, ambiguous. And VUCA actually is an acronym that came out of the U.S. military out of the Army War College in the 90s. Uh, and you and actually it, link in the letter to the actual photocopied which, document, which is so fantastic. Like, nerd, I'm looking at read it, and it, it's like, it's an amazing I, I just love the format. Like, I feel like we should write a book together with this format, like exactly this format. You know, like those, like, yeah, it's like those, those photocopies that were then scanned where there's, you know, there's sort of, there's some, there's some black spots and there's even like parts that are, that are, um, uh, uh, like censored out because they're not for release. And it's, and, and then there's this like old colored stamp on the front page that says like, this is the best available or the, the best condition copy of this document that exists. And oh, it is so fun to find these nuggets on the internet of, you know, artifacts from the analog age when things were physical before they became digital and they've passed through many hands. And, and this is one of them because in the early nineties, you know, like kind of roll the clock back to then sort of, you know, Berlin Wall has fallen down, you know, Soviet Union has collapsed. And if you're in the military, you're trying to figure out the U.S. military. So so what like where do, where does the world go now and what's going to happen and what's our role in that? And so this idea of the VUCA world that it was volatile and uncertain and, and complex and ambiguous was was their language to to figure out this sort of interregnum between the Cold War and whatever the fuck was going to come after that. And, you know, fast forward to today and, uh, you know, the wider sort of community of, of people in authority have said like, hey, that, that's actually, that's exactly how we feel. <laughs> that everything we thought we knew, sort of the, the system conditions that we've been operating in for however long, we just, it just seemed to be collapsing around us. We got to figure out something new. Yeah. Would you say too, like two and a half decades later, this is filtered to the general public and you could argue, right? Like that mm -hmm. across the world, globally, the rise of a new kind of populism is part of the reaction to the VUCA world, right? Like mm -hmm. people in your book, uh, in, in the next renaissance, right? I mean, the new renaissance, you talk about how, you know, the, the aggregate gains of the original renaissance and today are both, you know, unparalleled. And yet, you know, what is the, what is the uh, person say, uh, Ronald Reagan used to say, if, if your neighbor uh, is unemployed, it lost their job. It's a recession. You lost your job. Now it's a depression. You know, like, so that's kind of, you know, like this is, this is so much of the rise of populism is this, even though the aggregate gains are so much, are, are you know, indubitable. Like, I mean, they're, but lots yeah, but of people are, are left out. Uh, losers yeah. They're the losers. Time. Yeah. And, and I guess that's kind of the thing that somehow naively we didn't understand that both those things can be true. Right. Like, uh, we can be better off as a as a country, as a society, as a humanity, and a lot of us can be worse off. G.K. Chesterton, yeah. Chesterton said that. Chesterton said that the brilliance of of 
pre-modern wisdom is the pre-modern wisdom would rather take two truths intention or paradox than settle for a half truth hmm. whereas i feel so, like we're, we're like hey just yeah. give me the half truth please and, and the half truth is a really uncomfortable place for people and you know so from this vuca acronym to the people who promoted it the people who use it today what they're really trying to do is find a language to capture their sense of unease to capture their their sense of 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 doubt about, am I going to be able to make the right decision, right? I've got important choices that I need to make, and but I can't see where the world is going. I can't see where this choice might go. And so I hesitate to act. You know, I, I miss the opportunity because the world is just too uncertain to act. And, and so that's, that's kind of where I think most people are today. And that's sort of what the, those are the feelings and anxieties they're connecting with when they talk about doubt, when they talk about uncertainty. And you have great, like four particular examples that I, I think are just like great for people that are thinking and reflecting about global trends. I mean, you, you just, you tick them off urban unknowns. We got urbanization. So we've got all these people in cities, which leads to demographic doubt, right? We don't, we don't like, you know, like, We've got increased diversity. We've got population waning, though, in industrialized societies. Birth rates are down. We have environmental iffiness, right? Like, we don't know what the future of climate change will yield. And, and, and it's and if mostly to solve those things. Or if it, yeah, and it's mostly settled science, except the United States. It's funny because there's no, like, industrialized nation that has an anti-climate science party except the united states i think i mean major party like i mean it, you know it like if you're the if you're the tories in england the conservative party you, you're still you don't doubt climate science i mean you yeah, might you might say hey we should economic and, yeah. yeah yeah and you talk and the last is you know economic and political insecurities you know the whole you know geopolitics globalization old alliances you know being questioned and and you know brexit and all these things take over the world and yes yeah yeah. And yeah, so, you know, so we, we live in this moment where there are, you know, like umpteen, uh, engines of, of doubt and like not little doubts and worries, but like, you know, is, is the world going to be fundamentally kind of picked up and thrown to the ground and broken into pieces and have to put itself back together again? And if it's true that uncertainty is this force, is this condition that makes us hesitant and and, and makes us miss opportunities, then we kind of therefore follow to the conclusion that, well, I guess it means that we're going to be uh, a hesitant uh, generation that, that misses a lot of opportunities because uncertainty is like, it's the soup that we're, that we're swimming. Right. And, and, you know, I think that that's where there's this big lever for us to like kind of hold up and say, well, wait a minute, maybe that's bullshit. Right. Maybe there's a more empowering way to think about uncertainty. Maybe actually, if you think about it, uncertainty is what keeps us flexible, keeps us asking good questions, you know, keeps us humble, keeps us searching. And aren't those some of the big, big traits that we really need in a rapidly changing world? I like that you said, it. I like you said, maybe there's a different perspective on certain, on uncertainty. <laughs> if, putting an uncertainty into your thesis, like, look, I, I've got a pretty good thesis here, but maybe I'm going to put it forth modestly. So you come up with this interesting diagram, which I think is fascinating and brilliant. You say, I like, imagine, like, notes. yeah, we'll throw out in the show notes, the graphics. So imagine like a sort of XY axis, right? And at the, 
vertical, the vertical line is at the top is fearlessness and at the, the bottom is anxiety. And then the horizontal or left, right line on the left, on the left side or is not knowing. And on the right side is knowing. So like you could plot all these things on some kind of like graph, like you did in geometry and, you know, middle school or high school, some important part in um, primary, secondary education. So you say, if you're fearless, right, if you got fearlessness and you know a lot, you're pretty educated and you're fearless. The sin is myopia. If you know a lot and you have high anxiety, you're angsty. It's just like, uh, you know, it's just like there are a lot of sort of blue state urban coffee shops filled with these people you know, <laughs> in, in, in metro urban United States. If you are largely not full of knowledge and you're full of anxiety on the sort of bottom quadrant, you got paralysis. And if you're fearless and know nothing, you've got hubris. And so what? That it didn't work for any characters in a Greek tragedy. F Greece. We're America. I'm the best. Making America hubris again. Yeah. That, so, you know, it's interesting. I put that map together and I tried to think of, you know, the who are, who are sort of world political leaders today who, you know, have made each of those mistakes, each of those species of mistake around being too certain. And, and I figured out three of the four. You know, I feel like, I feel like the myopia was David Cameron, who, you know, was so sure that he understood British politics and the British people that he could offer a referendum on EU membership and it would go his way. Right. So he Do you was think the if he were a little less good looking, he would have done better. Like he just had that sort of aging bond look. I feel like if he was well, a I little less good looking, he would have been more insecure. I, I thought he was not bad looking. He's no Tony Blair, but. Yeah. So like he was, he was classic myopia, right? And how did he get there? By being way too certain about the world. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, I think is classic angst. Uh, you know, how did she get there? By just being way too, uh, certain about, you know, how, how badly they blew it and the consequences of that. And I think that, um, uh, the current British Prime Minister, Theresa May, you know, is a great example of paralysis, right? Like, you know, she's full of anxiety because getting this Brexit thing right, I mean, it, it doesn't just make or break her job, it makes or breaks the country. Uh, and yet she's paralyzed because, you know, fundamentally she doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know what Europe's going to decide. And, you know, so she's just stuck. And hubris, yeah, like hubris is is not knowing anything. And knowing that that doesn't matter because, you know, like, knowledge is for wimps. And at the end of the Who day, could we put in that category? It's so hard to find yeah, someone. I was thinking... Like, Obama. Yeah, yeah. It's Obama. Of, he was very hubristic. He was a reader, right? So I thought he was kind of fearless. He didn't seem good. But, but you know, he, he, he liked to know stuff. Maybe W, George W. But, like, yeah, no one... No one comes to mind. No but, one's more hubristic than me. I'm the most hubristic. <laughs> is hubristic a word? Oh, well, it is now. I mean, I, I don't know. I, could, I can admit it. We're going to have to keep a running list of words that you invent on this podcast. It should be a word, but I mean, I don't know if it is. Yeah, it might be a word. I mean, maybe if it isn't a word, I think we have to use it three times and then the Oxford English Dictionary will pick it up and put your name beside it. So here, then you follow this up with something I find fascinating because you don't just uh, offer a critique, you offer some positive ways forward. You say for the myopic person, right? They need challenge, right? Like they probably need to be, they need their sort of insular, maybe elite worldview, you know, the fearlessness knowing person, they need challenge. For the person that's knowing and anxious, they need some validation. They need like 
what if the myopic person needs some challenge about what they know, the angst-ridden person needs validation of what they already know, right? And then the the paralyzed person just needs to learn. Like they need, actually, you're, you're not knowing your anxiety. The more you know, the the less scary. It's not like the world will instantly become a a completely safe place, but it's a lot less scary once you know the the you know lay of the land. Yeah, you've got to separate the things you can know from separate things you can't, and then focus on the former. And for the hubris person, you just got to prepare. You got to read a book. You got to get. Google a well, little bit. You got to prepare for what they're going to do, right? Yeah. Hubris, oh, you're saying prepare. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, ideally, I mean, if you're, if you're suffering from hubris, you're probably not going to prepare yourself because you think, oh, you know, oh, I just follow my gut and it always. But that's up. what's interesting, right? But, the, for the other three, they can do something like they're curable, right? Like, it, like, all, yeah. You know, it's interesting because actually, so it, for, for most, actually for all of, I think they're all curable, but they all require sort of, more than the person who suffers from certainty, right? Like if I suffer from myopia, I need other people to challenge my views, right? If I suffer from angst, I need other people to, to validate me and say, you know, yeah, you've made these mistakes and they're big, but those losses don't say everything about you, Hillary. I, I, I think even you could put Obama mm. on somewhere in between the myopic and the angsty and that like, he, you mm. know, he used to say we had the best policies. We just didn't message well enough. Like, mm. I mean, I think mm. that, he probably, you know, it's funny because they said Valerie Jarrett would censor what he was allowed to see because Obama mm-hmm. always wanted to read the critical op-ed pieces and think pieces about his, because he obsessed on his critics mm-hmm. and not in a way like tweeted. Mm-hmm. He was like, he needed more validation. He kind of mm-hmm. needed more like, mm-hmm. hey, we're doing some good things here. Like mm-hmm. he probably was too angsty about criticism. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, and I think that, so, okay, step back a second. So, you know, I think of uncertainty, uh, not in one dimension of, you know, what do we know, what don't we know, but in two dimensions, you know, what do we know, don't know? And then how do we feel about that? Confident or anxious? And when you, when you give it this two dimensional space, this is like I the think, e, the IQ, EQ thing, right? Like IQ is like what yeah, we know okay, and right. EQ is our emotional intelligence. Like, totally. so we got to have a two factor kind of theory, totally. like. I like that. Yeah, it's a two-factor theory. And when you when you map out sort of that intelligent and emotional space that way, I think it becomes really like glaringly clear that the the danger zone is sort of on the perimeter of that space, which is certainty, right? And and then the role of uncertainty is to help to sort of pull us back from that place where we're confident that we don't need uh, other people to challenge us, to validate us, to teach us, to help us prepare, right? But to pull us back from that kind of, yeah, I got it all figured out, or it doesn't matter because I just know, or I can't get anything done, to a kind of, you know, middle zone of, you know, and this is sort of where the Japanese koans come in, right? It's sort of like like a, an uncomfortable comfort place where, yeah, okay, I'm going to hang with the, the half-truth, and, and figure this stuff out because that's the productive space, right? And I think when we think, when we start to reflect upon that and look out at the world around us, you know, that's kind of one of the big problems. You know, we talk about sort of post-truth and, and, and fake news, but, but, you know, another way to think about it is what, what society is really suffering from is a crisis of, of too much truth, right? Of too much certainty. 
that this is right and that's wrong. And, and, you know, especially in a democratic society, we just, it kind of just stops to function if we don't have that kind of curiosity and openness to help us navigate all of this shit. So, so yeah. So and this is, I think, and there are all sorts of, and I know that, like a lot of the work that you've done and sort of the spirituality dimension of this, but I think this is a big virtue that we need to recover. And it's a big narrative. This, this, this narrative today of all this uncertainty para- paralyzes us and makes us hesitant that we need to flip and, and, and start to welcome the, the confusions because I think that that's, that's how we sort of, um, protect ourselves from the mistakes of, of, of arrogance and, and moving too fast on some things. So one of my favorite thinkers today, these days, is a guy named Tomas Halik, and he is a Czech Roman Catholic priest, but he became a priest under, in a secret seminary because he was friends with Vaclav Havel, right? And it, when the Iron Curtain was still, mm-hmm. had not fallen. And the fact that he was with Havel, he couldn't get into the, you know, sort of state run BS seminary. So he had to go like, and they had the Charles Taylor and all these like amazing philosophers teaching in this underground seminary. They would smuggle them in and stuff. But he wrote this great book called, it's all about like, it's called Patience with God. And he said that what this kind of new atheism, the radical sort of Dawkins, Hitchens, Sam Harris, what that has in common with fundamentalism is they're both sort of impatient worldviews that have little tolerance for ambiguity or mystery. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny because I think mm-hmm. you, I, I think mm-hmm. like in the American context, when I look at American fundamentalism, I don't see people full of faith as much as I see people yearning for certainty. And so mm-hmm. a book that, you know, has been huge for me on this is by a, a missionary to India, uh, Leslie Newbigin, who it's interesting when he went to India, he was like in his thirties, he retired in his like late sixties or seventies, came back and he realized England had changed a lot. He knew it, but he was kind of like, we were good at cross-cultural intellectual analysis in India. We trained clergy to always be thinking of all these religions and worldviews, but in England, mm-hmm. we're not training people like that. We're not training people to deal with all the diversity in the society. So he wrote the, the last book he wrote, and I think he was blind when he wrote it. It was written in 97. It was called Proper Confidence, and it's all about faith, doubt, and certainty. And he talks about how the dark side of the Enlightenment project, and he's not an anti-Enlightenment guy, but he says this you know, Cartesian, you know, Descartes, the old, you know, sort of mythical version, he sat in this oven, not while it was on, but, and sat there, sat in this like cold stone fixture and said, what could I know with absolute certainty, right? And, the, and this famous in Latin, the cogito, I know, I think, therefore I am. I know I'm a thinking substance. I might not even have a body. I might be code or a gas, but I can at least know that. And so I'm going to start from the, from the indubitable spot of what can be certain. And I'm only going to believe things if they can be sort of axiomatically worked out from certainty. And it's amazing. Newbegin, I'll just I'll read this these eight sentences at length here. He says, he concludes, I mean, his the first three chapters of this book are faith is the way to knowledge, right? So he's, Newbegin's point is, you don't walk into a physics class in the ninth grade saying, I doubt every experiment until I do them all myself. No, you have trust in the teacher and the textbook. But then his second chapter is doubt is the way to truth. So you first have to have faith in the tradition of the system, but then also you can critique any one of the experiments. You can't critique it all at once, but actually you can doubt anything you have faith in. And this interplay between faith and doubt is the way anything moves forward because there's all these uncertainties you always have. I think most Western people have faith that liberal society is better when we have free markets and 
free gender relations and things like this. But there's lots of people in the world that disagree with that. And you can't indubitably prove that. So we have faith in it. We can doubt it. We can hear our global critics and go back and forth. But ultimately, so faith and doubt are sort of the way forward. Then his third chapter is certainty as the way to nihilism. (laughs) And when you need certainty, you ultimately become nihilistic. And he says that it's Nietzsche who at the end of the 19th century drew with inescapable clarity the necessary conclusion of the method of Descartes. For the reason already given, the critical principle must necessarily destroy itself. Rational criticism rests on belief which, beliefs which are, for the moment, held acritically. But these beliefs are themselves liable to critical questioning. If the critical principle is exalted to the supreme place in the enterprise of knowing, then the possibility of knowing anything is destroyed. True and false, right and wrong, these are now words which have no objective reference. They are simply expressions of the will. The will to power is the real driving force of history. The eternal truths of reason, so beloved during the age of reason, are in fact nothing of the kind. They are the products of particular historical developments and of particular exercises of the will to power. The 20th century has learned the lesson. Claims to speak meaningfully about right and wrong are discounted. Instead, one speaks of values. These values are a matter of mere personal choice. They express what the person who holds them wishes to see enacted. They are precisely expressions of the will. Albeit, he says in parentheses, in a less brutal form than suggested by Nietzsche, because Nietzsche was a humanitarian. But that's a fascinating analysis of Western culture. Wow, there's so many places to, so many jumping off points from that. You know, one thing that um, I'm thinking as I listen to you give that passage is, you know, a lot of the anger that um, animates, what do we call it on this podcast, sort of, you know, populism in in the world today is, is you know... It, I mean, for, and I, you know, we need to kind of unpack that for people. Like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying there. But there is this sort of sense that, you know, people were saying, okay, this is truth. And therefore, this is what you have to do. And a sense that, well, but actually what's going on isn't, you're not, you're not sort of giving truth. You're cloaking power in the, in the word truth and telling us this is what we have to do. And, and really, this is a power play. And it's interesting how this has shifted because conservatives in previous recent decades have accused the sort of multicultural elite left of uh, sort of decrying and debunking every truth claim by, well, you're a white guy, you're in this institution, and so you're so perspectival. Now yeah, in the American, privilege, man. Check, yeah, now in the American context, you're a white guy wearing a white shirt right now. The conservatives have become the relativists. Right. Like, well, it's like Kellyanne Conway. Like, well, these are alternative facts. And Chuck Todd is like, you know, I mean, well, that's an alternative fact is a falsehood. I mean, this is you know, but that it's it's conservatives are saying, well, everything is so editorialized that you can only trust. It's just it's funny that like the, the people that have become the heirs to a kind of radical perspectival thing are not the left anymore. It's the right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, radical perspectival. And yeah, you know, we. Uh, several maps ago, we talked about, uh, you know, that really, I mean, the locus of truth in society today is your group, right? Because all these other truth machines have been broken by sort of everybody deploying them for their own agenda that now are like, well, I, I don't know what to believe. So I just believe what the people around me believe. And that's my reference for, for what's true. But I was, you know, there, and I, I haven't sorted it all out and it'd be great if sort of in the comments people can help us sort it out. But there seem to me, there's a few really closely and powerfully related notions at work. You know, one is, one is sort of this certainty and uncertainty thing. Uh, another is confidence, right? And, and another is strength. And it seems to me that 
you know, to, to hang in uncertainty, to hang in uncertainty, you need to have a certain degree of confidence about yourself that that I'm okay in this space. I mean, that's and, the title of Newbegin's book, Proper Confidence. I mean, cause yeah. it the, the interplay between faith and doubt is what gives you this kind of proper confidence that gets you out of this sort of nihilistic quest for certainty that, that, that ultimately you need something emotionally, psychologically that can give you both roots and wings, you know, that can give you, this is what good parenting does, right? That it gives kids roots and wings, you know? And so, you know, it's, 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 you know, maybe it's just the tragic human condition that, you know, when we, when our fear is activated or our anxiety, we feel weak, um, you know, that's, you know, then we sort of flee to certainty. We flee to clarity, but actually, you know, that, or we fight. It's fight or flight. It, it's, it, it's often we we certainty can be f like flight or fight, right? It can we flee to the false sense of security or attack those that are provoking the anxiety. So Trump is a is you know the sectarian kind of uh, you know sociological movements. They do flight and anxiety, right? If you're a certain kind of withdraw, mostly the religious. We think of people you know that get in you know, sequestered religious communities there. That's the flight response to certainty. And the fight is Trump. Like anything that's different than me, you just knock it down until my voice is the only one that's standing. And so it seems to me, I mean, boy, you know, if we, if we can answer some of these questions, that'd be amazing. Right. Um, but so, you know, the, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable seems to me like one of the critical skills that we need to develop right now. Yeah. And this but is, I, the but human I don't brain, know how we do that. The human brain is wired. Uh, I think there's a woman I interviewed on my interview podcast, it's Carolyn Dweck or something, I forget, but she wrote a book, basically she's a psychologist about it. The book is called you're wrong. Uh, and I forget the subtitle, but basically she studied why we make mistakes and why we hate admitting it. Like, she looks at surgeons, the Iraq war, she looks at everything. And she's like, basically the human mind really hates cognitive dissonance. Like when there are things in tension and it can't be wrapped up in a bow. And so, so many of our mistakes are not being able to stay with the anxiety mm. and sit in it. It's, it's very interesting. Like you think about sometimes when you see people try quick fixes for people in pain, mm. it's less about the person in pain and their well-being, And it's more about the anxiety that seeing the pain causes in the person that is the so-called helper. When really maybe the most helpful thing is to just be present in the midst of the pain and not mm. try to explain it away. So, so often so many quick fixes are actually quick fixes for the so-called helper's anxiety and not mm. to actually help the person suffering. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, as I'm listening to you talk about that, I'm just thinking about the, the relevance of this notion of doubt, you know, extends from all the way from our personal lives and understanding how do we hang with emotions in a healthy way, you know, up to sort of the, the meta level of, of society, right? And how, because, you know, in, in, in a democracy, you know, democracy breaks down once everybody finds truth, right? Because, you know, if I've got the truth, then, you know, having some kind of common political project is unnecessary anymore. There's no point sharing power with people who don't realize the truth, right? And so the only reason for us to be sort of groping toward some paradise democratically is if none of us believe we've got all the answers, right? And so we got to have, you know, some kind of, you know, democracy is meant to be the crucible, you know, in which we kind of burn away some irrelevancies and, and, and get to, 
get to the meat of, okay, yeah, this is what we can agree on. And it's, and it's the most anxiety provoking form of social organization. Like a liberal democracy mm. is by mm. nature anxiety provoking. So that's really interesting. Cause you know, then I think back to sort of the years that I lived in China and, and how the world is looking at China now and the kind of confidence that China uh, is projecting to the world. And also, you know, that the government there is projecting to its people is there is this sense of, of strength, uh, and, and the certainty that sort of a state, uh, you know, a strong central state that can sort of direct the economy and direct science, and direct industry towards, um, you know, very explicit and clear like economic and military and technological objectives. It, it, it seems so compelling versus you know, the democratic project, which is, whoa, everything is happening and we're just going to kind of muck around and let, let some kind of compromise emerge. And, you know, but to have, and it, so like, that's maybe the biggest example of this power of doubt to have certainty. You've got to decide this is the value that is most important, right? And, and that therefore we can sacrifice any other value in order to get there. And to have uncertainty is to say, you know, fundamentally humanity and human society um, is full of conflicting values. And so the only way to do this in a manner that is respectful to uh, sort of the sovereignty of each person, right? Respectful to that, to that power to choose uh, is that we, 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 we deny ourselves the authority to say absolutely which way is the way forward. So, <laughs> it can be damn frustrating sometimes. Like if somebody we just want to move forward. <laughs> yeah. So I, in conclusion, I think if I don't know how to say this in Latin, but if, if the cogito for Descartes is, I think therefore I am maybe our, we'll, we'll figure out our Latin list, our Latin scholar listeners can give us the Latin here, but like something like I doubt, therefore there's hope. Ooh, or or I doubt, therefore I might be right. Oh, that's or, or I doubt, and therefore there might be hope. Well, you know, it's it's Fourth of July for you. I had my Canada Day first of July a couple of days ago, and as of that day, uh, marijuana is legal, man. At least where I come from. I, and you know what? It's legal like in lots of places here. It, it, it's legal lots of places here, unless Jeff Sessions has his way. <laughs> Jeff Beauregard Sessions. I mean. Wait. Michelle Wolf said, didn't anybody tell you the Civil War is over and the South lost? <laughs> uh, well, you know, word hasn't reached him yet. No. I think he's still living in no. denial. No. And he's, he's, but we can't say his head's in the clouds. I think. Because he's not you know, a very tall man. <laughs> but you're right. I, I think that we need to send this letter, The Power of Doubt, to uh, 1600 Pennsylvania. Yeah, this is way your letter's way too long for Trump. It's 240 <laughs> characters. Well, no, didn't they, didn't they double? Don't I have like, well, it was one, was one forty, and then yeah, went to two forty. Yeah. It's still not going to be enough. Or two eighty or something. Well, All right. yet again, we have plumbed the depths of a lot of stuff and listeners stay tuned as we continue our search for ways forward, navigating the now with these conversations. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.